Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show. Canada has fallen to 34th in the world when it comes to COVID-19 vaccinations. So much so that now we have to rely on COVAX, an agency designed to provide vaccines for those who can't afford them. The Proud Boys have been added to Canada's list of terrorist groups. What does that all mean? Ontario kids are heading back to class. Some are happy. Some are not happy. How do you find the balance? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Great news. Ontario's COVID-19 positivity rate has dropped to its lowest <laughs> Drop to his lowest hey, level. Take two. Start again. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Great news. Ontario's COVID-19 positivity rate has dropped to its lowest level since October. What does that mean? Nothing. Until we get the vaccine here in Canada. So stay safe. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. <laughs> Is that your breakfast that came up? <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> oh, man, he's doubled over. Uh, good afternoon. Hey, it happens. Uh, ask Ted. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 19. It is 900. It's 19. Yeah, all hell's breaking loose here. Uh, it is 1211. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, get back at the station trying to keep the Scott Thompson home show uh, between the pipes. We're failing at our end, though, I, think, I, I believe. Uh, where are we? Feel free to go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Close the door. Take your <laughs> back to class. He's so traumatized about heading back to school. Uh, where were we? Feel free to jump into the conversation. The Scott Thompson home show as we wind down week number 47. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The lots to talk about today. The kids uh, heading back to school. Uh, next week, we will talk about that coming up as well. The situation, uh, with COVAX. And, uh, now we're finding out, uh, shortages, uh, not only of the Pfizer vaccine, which we were aware of, but also Moderna, uh, the week of February 22nd, uh, is reducing, uh, its supplies, uh, as well. So, uh, to talk more about, um, uh, all of this and, and, and where we are, let's listen to a quick report from, uh, Global's Tina Trajani. The Public Health Agency of Canada has warned the provinces and territories about the disruption. Last week, it announced the American pharmaceutical giant would only be shipping about 80% of the expected allotment of its vaccine during this first week of February, 180,000 doses instead of just over 230,000. But it appears the week of the 22nd will also be affected. Moderna has not confirmed the number of doses for that time frame as of yet. That's according to the document, which goes on to say changes in supply are difficult to forecast because they're affected by manufacturers' production capacities and distribution outside of Canada. The public health agency is still expecting to receive 2 million doses by the end of March. And the Prime Minister remains confident all Canadians who want a shot will have one by the fall. Tina Trajani, Global News. All right, let's bring in Dr. Don Bowdish, a tenured professor of pathology and molecular medicine, McMaster University, and is with us now. Uh, doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Very well, if very busy. <laughs> I can Im- I can imagine your thoughts. The uh, the fact that Cal- uh, Canada has fallen to thirty uh, fourth in the world for vaccinations. 
Well, we are uncovering problems that have existed but haven't had the political will and sort of the public knowledge uh, to really bring them to the forefront now. We've had issues with vaccine distribution in this country for a long time. I mean, even earlier uh, in the pandemic when the Ontario government announced it was going to really invest in the flu shot, so many people struggled to get a flu shot. And that's not due to lack of availability in this case. It was just due to distribution issues. And so now we've got that compounded by a vaccine that is hard to keep cold. You know, it's it's in high demand and it's just showing all the holes that have existed for a long time in our country. But this seems to be a supply issue, is it not? Mm-hmm. Certainly. So, I mean, what we're seeing now is we're seeing many things play out. We're seeing that uh, the entire world is trying to buy these vaccines at the same time. And so we, Canada was pretty proactive in buying contracts with different vaccine manufacturers. In many cases, we come out as number one for having uh, sort of invested in these, in these contracts very early on. But now, of course, those companies have to provide these. Uh, the technology is not uh, simple. You know, it's not easy to make these vaccines and have them go through the quality control. We had uh, delays due to new factories being built. We're having all the challenges that come with producing things in a pandemic. But even if we were to get those vaccines in our hands, we're still struggling to actually get them into the arms of people. And so we definitely need that more coordinated approach in this to get get ahead of this. Uh, I I don't think the problem now is getting them into the arms of people. I mean, haven't the provinces been doing a reasonably good job of that, considering their supply? I mean, they've had some issues where some have decided to keep the the supply on the shelf because they were holding out for the second dose, as per the the prescription from Health Canada and the manufacturer. So, like, I mean, I can see this being a distribution issue very early on in the first week or so of of this. But this is a supply issue. It's 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 not a distribution issue. It's the fact that we don't have. Uh, from what I understand, production uh, capability. And, you know, you were talking about the government uh, signing those contracts in the, in the portfolio and such. Should there been or was there, I guess we don't know, a production deal in there? I mean, we're seeing the UK basically start at the same place we were and they're producing now. So should there have been a production deal in those contracts? In truth, we wouldn't have been able to get production facilities up in time, especially not to make the mRNA ones. I'll, t- I'll tell you a personal story. So I finished my PhD in 2005, and in 2005, promising young immunologists would get job offers for vaccine manufacturers in Canada, because that's where a lot of immunologists end up. And uh, I'm forever thankful I didn't take those companies up on those offers, because uh, they don't exist anymore. They're no longer producing in Canada. So we, once upon a time, had uh, all the major suppliers producing vaccines in Canada. And slowly but surely, due to market forces and due to the fact that most of our production or manufacture of anything is not done in Canada, we've lost those big players. Now, I will say there are a couple of contenders, a small uh, startup companies in Canada who are actually have great candidates in the pipeline for the, the coronavirus. However, those required enormous investment from provincial or federal governments to get them up and running. And so if we truly want to not be in this position again, we need to invest in keeping manufacturing jobs here and keeping these high-value jobs here. And sometimes that's just not compatible with the way market forces and larger companies work. So we really do need to invest in small startups, um, you know, companies that have innovative and disruptive new technologies, 
And in that sense, we'd be better prepared because some of these vaccines are hard to make. The Pfizer and Moderna are new. It would be very challenging. Others, like the Oxford AstraZeneca, is easy, easy, easy. And in fact, we do have limited manufacturing um, capacity here. But this requires an investment, and you have to do this five to 10 years prior to the pandemic, not in the course of the pandemic. Uh, that being said, doctor, I mean, we've certainly heard the comments from the UK, from uh, Sir John Bell, a Canadian who's working over there uh, on the Oxford vaccine. And he said the UK was in the same place that Canada was. It's just that back in March and April uh, and the same time that Canada was working on the Can Sino deal with China, uh, Canadian companies like uh, Providence Therapeutics, they were all banging on the door saying we're just a couple of weeks behind uh, Pfizer and Moderna, and that is the new technology. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, again, um, yeah, I understand, you know, past governments didn't make it uh, very uh, 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 compatible, very uh, 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 incentive. There was no incentive there to get these companies to uh, to uh, to produce here in Canada. But again, it's not governments that make vaccines, it's companies, and we have to give them the, the incentive to stay here. But we could have been on this a year ago. Uh, so again, uh, we're seeing situations in the UK and, and many people say we do have this capacity to get it up and running. We definitely have limited capacity. I mean, we've, we've definitely are producing the Oxford AstraZeneca is what's called an adenovirus vaccine. And actually Canada has got some incredible adenovirus vaccines, uh, in production. We've been using them for cancer immunotherapies. We've been using them, uh, for phase one trials for other infections. The scale requires a lot of foresight. And I do think Canada was a little sluggish because at first, you know, you will remember we were pretty late to the epidemic game. All the other countries were struggling and it looked like by closing our borders and doing all the public health measures, maybe we'd be spared a little bit. So I, I sense that there wasn't a sense of urgency starting in January 2020 that other countries who, who were hit fast and hard maybe had. And perhaps that's, you know, one of the explanations to the sluggishness. Uh, Canada, like I said, is just used to relying on outside sources and bringing things in. And that kind of, uh, it happened with our masks, it happened with our personal protective equipment. When there were shortages and we couldn't make it in-house, we were really, really compromised. So, again, going back to uh, those early days, March and April, and again, a lot of our uh, purchasing deals weren't signed until August after the CanSino deal with China fell through. So, you know, obviously, we decided to work on the CanSino deal instead of listening to these various other Canadian or even U.S. manufacturers, the Novavax deal. It's not a Canadian company. It's a U.S. company. Should we have signed deals that allowed us to produce these. So when these companies are up and running, uh, you know, you're even talking about signing a deal now, and then they're going to have a vaccine by 2022. Obviously, if we'd started, you know, a year ago, we'd be a lot farther on. Should we have signed deals that allowed us to produce this? Well, in truth, you know, hindsight being 2020, uh, Canada was very proactive in getting vaccine deals with all the major manufacturers. We have more contracts with more companies than, than any other country. But we were slow in producing in-house. And I think, you know, with hindsight, you know, perhaps purchasing as opposed to making was not the right decision. However, it was it certainly seemed at the time to be the most expedient uh, decision. And unfortunately, I think this is just a hard lesson learned about how we have to keep advanced manufacturing at home. Yeah. And that's going to require a lot of and, you know, it's not even even if you could make the factory, 
right now, the entire country is struggling to get the people with the right training and expertise. We are all fighting, my lab's fighting, our research projects are all fighting for people with the same expertise in, in uh, vaccines and in, in infectious disease and in molecular biology and all these other things. So you have to have two things. You have to have the physical capacity, but you also have to have the intellectual capacity. And uh, I keep telling all the people who work with me, it's a great time to get a job right now. You know but, what? That was uh, my next, Don, that was my next question. <laughs> Just as a little sidebar here, we'll come back to this. But uh, students out there, is this an opportunity for them? And I, as I guess everything is in a post-COVID-19 world. But mm-hmm. obviously, this is going to be something that's going to need attention for the, for the years to come. Yes, and I'm excited for young people because, you know, engineering, we need to have better ways of making things quickly. There's going to be a huge boon in the whole medical uh, devices and engineering. There's going to be opportunities for people in research. There's uh, going to be an increased interest in how we use math to model these things because that helped inform our public decisions to such a great extent. Public health, which has always been underfunded, is going to have a boon of people who are who are driven to come and help and put their time and talent into this. So this, I hope, will be you know the start of something big where we really invest in these complex manufacturing issues and get that brain power going because it has been hard to get enough people to do the, all the work right now. And uh, and I hope that that will never be an issue again. Uh, do you, how much do you know, uh, Doctor, about the CanSino deal uh, that the Prime Minister was working on with China? Because that was a production deal uh, back mm-hmm. in, in March and June, and then obviously it went south when um, China decided they weren't going to release the information uh, to Health Canada and such, and then eventually the, the deal went south. That's the same facility that the Novavax people are, are going to use. What do we know about that in the CanSino deal? Do you, can you share any information on that? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not privy to a lot of that deal. I mean, historically, we've had lots of great interactions with CanSino and, and advanced manufacturing with those. Uh, there have been other experimental vaccines for other infections that Canada's partnered very effectively with. Uh, this one I'm not uh, privy to, but it, go, it does go to speak, uh, and I think it's sort of showing the public in a way that we've never seen before, how these manufacturing facilities can be multipurpose. So Novavax and CanSino, a lot of the um, the clean rooms that these things have to be made in, uh, a lot of the uh, you know the uh, quality control measures are actually shared facilities between multiple manufacturing units. So I think this is a great example of how um, if we build it, they will come. If we had invested in similar facilities, then we could have really filled them. And and you know one of the things that governments are so uh, opposed to is any waste of time, of space, of a factory sitting empty, especially one that's expensive to run as one of these. But what you see is during these times of surge capacity, how uh, how, how having a little bit of um, fallow time uh, will allow for mass expansion. And so. One of the things that we're learning is that, uh, you know, China has been incredibly proactive in creating these really um, sophisticated manufacturing uh, facilities that the rest of the world is, is using and benefiting from. And so this is an important lesson learned for us about how we must do the thing. Will we see uh, policy changes coming? I, I'm guessing we are. Um, uh, that will create more incentive for these companies to uh, to to reinvest in in Canada. I mean, I know uh, a lot of these big companies left. Uh, a, a lot of that was due to the generic drug business, which obviously is thriving in Canada. Uh, will we see more policy changes? Do you think that will make it more uh, attractive for these companies to set up business here? 
Yeah, I hope so. I think the companies are learning that having distri- or a, a wider range of places where they can make these is really helpful. You know, I'll give you an example in the in sort of the March to June uh, 2020 when uh, Italy was absolutely destroyed by the pandemic. All the nasal swabs that were in clinical use virtually, all the nasal swabs came from one factory in North Italy. And so if you'll remember, cast back to that dark time, nobody could get a nasal test. You know, we were telling people who were clearly infected if they didn't have to be in the hospital to stay home. There was a lot of drama. And so the economic incentive to centralize and just have one location, you know, is something that that companies obviously are are very savvy about. But during these times of crisis, it's a disaster. And so now companies are looking around the world, especially in the context of, you know, the AstraZeneca, which is sharing its its technology and saying, all right, listen, can you make this in India? Well, you make this in uh, the UK and you make this in uh, South America. And and that sort of dist- wider distribution provides us all with a little bit of protection. And so I definitely think there'll be uh, a revisiting, especially in the context of infectious disease, about spreading this, uh, these manufacturing dis- uh, places all over the world to protect from that. You know, people keep saying this is a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, but in fact, mm-hmm. we've narrowly skirted other pandemics. There was H1N1 in 2009, uh, Ebola, God forbid it had ever left the country, uh, Zika. So we need to have this sort of sense of awareness and concern for the rest of our days because we don't know when the next one would hit. And in some ways, we've been sort of lucky with this one, um, uh, but it's been incredibly disruptive. So we need we need to have this sort of preparation for the future. Dr. Don Bodish has been with us, tenured professor in pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster University. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. Here is today's daily commentary. Canadian sources of COVID-19 vaccine just got even more bizarre as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau scrambles to fill empty shelves and explain why it has taken a year to secure a vaccine production deal for Canada, as it finally did with Novavax of the U.S. with vaccines flowing here by 2022. The PM was boasting they were securing COVID-19 vaccine from COVAX. COVAX is a World Health Organization agency dedicated to contributing life-saving vaccine to lower- and middle-income countries. Canada is a lot of things, but it certainly is not that. Grabbing your share of vaccine from a supply meant for the less fortunate is a lot like donating a box at a food bank only to go around back and retrieve it. Tom Mulcair, former leader of the NDP, said in the media it was both embarrassing and a failure. To think we have to dip into a supply meant for poorer countries simply because we neglected to sign production deals to produce vaccine here a year ago and instead relied on others including China is unbelievable. And not what Canadians are. It is an embarrassment Canada can't take care of itself. But boy, the PM looks good, doesn't he? I'm Scott Thompson. All right, uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Thomas Tenkate, Professor, School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and is with us now. Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, yes, thanks very much, Scott. Thank you. So, Thomas, what are your thoughts on, uh, well, first, before we even get to that, uh, just for those that may not know, uh, again, uh, adding to what Sandy said, what's the, what's the objective of COVAX here? What is it all about? Yeah, so, so COVAX is an international uh, initiative that's uh, co-run by the World Health Organization and a uh, 
and a number of other organisations. And basically what they're trying to do is uh, distribute uh, COVID vaccines to uh, around the world and particularly to low and middle income countries. And I think and my understanding is their goal is to deliver two, uh, two billion doses by the end of this year. So um, uh, what are your thoughts, Thomas, on the fact that we are accessing uh, this COVAX uh, supply that as, is meant for, for poorer nations? Um, wh- what are your thoughts on that? Is that the intention here? Well, yeah. So my understanding is that when uh, Canada signed up to contribute to COVAX, they, they had a, you know, an option to uh, you know, take out up to you know, half of what they put into it in regard to from a funding perspective and so uh, and so what that means is you know whatever whatever say Canada pulls out of the uh, the COVAX then it means that that proportion or that number of uh, vaccines just won't be available for distribution to lower or lower uh, income countries you know unless Canada you know re you know sort of puts in more into the COVAX initiative. How does this look for Canada in the eyes of the rest of the world? Obviously, we're the only G7 country to do this. Um, you know, we are where we are uh, as far as supply and the supply being short and any sort of production uh, facility still quite a ways away. How does the world view this? Well, well yeah, definitely, uh, you know, from what I've seen online and what I've heard, uh, people are sort of saying, well, you know, you guys are a rich country. Why do you need to do this? Uh, you know, you, you you have the means to be able to purchase the uh, vaccines directly, and you know, and all the you know the ultimately the outcome of this is uh, less vaccines for for countries that can't afford it. So so definitely, you know, uh, you know, there's there are uh, you know some strong critics uh, out there uh, in regard to this decision of of Canada to uh, take up this option of of uh, you know taking back. Some of the uh, the doses, in essence, that they paid for. Uh, obviously, production capacity has been an issue uh, in this country for many, many years. Uh, it, it certainly just didn't fall on on this government. Uh, that being said, many are saying that we should have entered into these licensing or production agreements uh, way back in March and April. Uh, you know, when we were lining up for the for the portfolio and, and these various different uh, sources to to secure vaccination, are are you surprised we didn't do more to uh, to produce our own? To to since we're signing these agreements, that we didn't come up with some sort of production agreement. Yeah, well, well, I think there's you know there's a couple of aspects to that. One one aspect is that you know that you know sort of last year, early early in the in the year, you know Canada. Uh, so signed agreements with a range of different com- uh, companies to to purchase vaccines if if those vaccines actually were were uh, able to be produced and then uh, approved and so and so I think there was like seven or more uh, companies that they entered the agreements with and and of those so far two two have been approved the uh, Pfizer one and the uh, Moderna one and so so it means that and, and at that time I, my understanding is that they 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 signed enough, so they signed with those seven companies for like three times as many doses as, as they would need to vaccine uh, vaccinate everyone in the country. But so you know, so far you know, two out of the two out of the seven have have come through, and the other and, and the other five five haven't. So so you know, it's really a numbers game. You know, 
my sense is that you know uh, additional ones will be will be approved uh you know we'll get through the process and then we'll get approved and so so there will be that additional capacity due to the existing uh contracts that are in place but the the other side is that uh you know it, all of this means that uh Canada is very reliant on uh vaccines that are produced in other countries uh, and particularly in Europe and so so you know and and I you know looking looking back uh, over the over the years and and you know various inquiries and and uh you know reports that have come into place after you know previous previous out, uh, outbreaks have have all indicated that that there you know it would be a good idea to have some local capacity in in this in in regard to uh vaccine dis- uh production and and uh you know and that's what I understand that the uh government is now funding the uh you know the develop the development of of a facility in Montreal but uh you know that's also uh going to take you know a fair fair bit of time before before that is is actually on board so my sense is you know, I think it's you know October or sometime when when the the facility is is actually operational it might take many more months for it to be actually fully uh uh you know tuned up to produce this vaccine and so we're really talking you know sort of you know uh mid you know this time or later next year before any vaccines would be distributed through that process so so it so it is a sort of a i think a a missed opportunity from you know from uh, in regard to you know past past resourcing and, and funding are you surprised where we are that we have and not canada specifically but are you surprised where the world is in the sense that there is a production supply issue there's you know there's not enough supply not a, not enough places and that's slowly increasing we've seen the uk be you know be where canada is and within a year and they started march and april uh and now they're they're pumping out a uh, vaccine are you surprised that uh, that we are caught by a supply issue after we already saw a supply issue with ppes uh it, it is sort of interesting that we don't you know we don't tend to uh, learn learn lessons very well, and uh, you know, uh, and I think you know, vaccines are also you know one of those uh, you know it, it's they're, they're different to because they're you know bi- biological in nature. You know, there's there's you know some additional uh, sort of things that can happen. You know, like if you know anyone who's you know cooking a recipe at home knows that you know sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And and uh, well, anyway, that's for me. <laughs> Me anyway, in my bad cooking, but uh, you know, I think you know that there is an aspect that that there's there's uh, you know uh, uh, a, a broader range of sort of room for error in in regard to or, or you know sort of things that complications that come into play uh, once you're once you're uh, you know producing a vaccine, and so 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 you know that 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 also then means that sort of additional redundancy. An additional capacity needs to be built in this into the system, and I and and it is it is interesting to me that you know that that uh, knowing that that you know dramatic need for the vaccine to be distributed, you know while while it was while it was uh, you know in the while in in development, they didn't also really ramp up the tooling and the up tooling and 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 the, from a facility perspective in regard to production and then distribution. 
so getting back to the COVAX uh, situation, and, and as we mentioned, this is an agency designed to uh, provide vaccines for those who can't afford them in uh, in poorer countries and such. Obviously, Canada has linked into that and, and even boasted about it. Um, is that a good idea? I mean, I guess we have no choice because we have nothing else. Um, but is it a good idea to, to lean on COVAX, even though it comes at the expense of other less developed countries? Yeah. My, yeah, my sense is that, that I, I would put it in, you know, the sort of the last option category. You know, if you, if you don't have anything else, well, if you have an agreement that lets you, you know, access this number of, uh, doses, then yeah, sure, sure do it. But, but really, you know, if, if at all possible, you know, say this is our contribution to the world, and uh, let's you know let's sort of work together with you know other wealthier nations to be able to uh, provide for the for the less wealthier countries. And so, so yeah, definitely, it's I would say I would call it the you know an option of last resort. And my sense, you know, I, I question whether or not we really need to do that right you know right now, given given uh, you know the you know the potential to you know ramp up. You know, additional uh, contracts and, and whatever directly with the suppliers, suppliers ourselves. Are you surprised at the end of the day when Canada does, and just this uh, this week signed a a production deal with uh, the U.S. company Novavax? Are you surprised at the end of the day that we're signing one with Novavax as opposed to? Pfizer or Moderna or a Canadian company. Um, and, and Novavax is going to be using, from what I understand, the same facility, uh, the, uh, the National Research Council facility that initially was in the deal, the China deal with CanSino. That was where they were going to, uh, produce this vaccine. So are you surprised that it was Novavax that ends up, uh, being the, the, the new tenant there? Well, it, it, it's surprising from the perspective that 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 vaccine you know still hasn't been approved here, and so uh, it, it's basically sort of saying, well, you know, we're anticipating that we will approve this, but 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 you know, in some ways, you know, what what does that mean? It, it's sort of a you know rolling the dice a little bit, uh, considering you know you, it's not you know you know fully approved here yet. So so for me that that's. Uh, you know, a question: uh, What what does that really mean? You know, if if ultimately that doesn't get uh, approved, what what happens? Do you, you know? Then you'll have to look at uh, working with someone else. So so that, that there's you know definitely risk risk involved with with that decision. Um, we've heard uh, we had the CEO of Providence Therapeutics on the show uh, last week, and he talked about how back in March and April. Uh, they were saying uh, to the government that, you know, we're just, you know, four, six weeks behind where Pfizer and Moderna are, and that's with the new type of vaccine, and that this all fell on deaf ears, and we're actually inquiring about using this facility, the, the, uh, the initial CanSino facility that has now since gone to Novavax, and, and we're told no, uh, along with other uh, Canadian options. Um, if we were to have taken that step that the UK did way back when, and in March and April, uh, instead of, or as well as, I shouldn't say instead of, but as well as purchasing uh, uh, vaccine, uh, but also to get the licensing and then start construction, I mean, they're already up and running. So 
um, you have to wonder what kind of situation we'd be in right now if we had uh, if the CanSino deal wasn't didn't have the rug pulled out of us from the from the Chinese government on that, where we would be in 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 a sense of production. Well, yeah, definitely. There's you know I think you know what you know in in hindsight what we're sort of seeing now is that you know over the past year that I think you know whether or not it's government or, you know, actually, you know, members of the community, in a lot of ways we probably haven't really wanted to accept what's really happening. You know, it's like mm. this is, you know, way worse than what we thought it could be or, you know, everyone was sort of thinking, you know, this isn't going to be as bad as, you know, some people are saying. And so so in some ways we sort of erred on the side of, well, you know, it's not going to be that bad, you know, that bad, so let's not sort of, you know, you know, go go uh, full tilt at it. You know, straight up. And so, and 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 I think you know what what we've seen is you know countries that have uh, gone very hard in regard to the the restrictions and 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 a range of measures and and really have taken things you know really 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 seriously. You know, they're they're the countries that are in the best position right now. And so so I think you know that that's a sort of a lesson of you know you know about you know sort of really sort of deciding on you know how how uh, how hard to to go at this and and, and uh, you know I think there's there's that aspect that you know we probably didn't sort of uh, take it as seriously as seriously as we probably should have you know back then by uh, the prime minister is saying uh, by the end of March mass vaccinations will start all of a sudden the floodgates will open up and this stuff will start pouring in are you confident of that considering where the world is right now oh, uh not, not really. You know, I, I think it's 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 definitely my sense is it's it's uh, you know we're we're at the stage where it's more of the same for the next for the next period of time. Uh, you know, like like but we have seen that uh, you know there can be dramatic ramp ups in in uh, production and and uh, and distribution. You know, at times. So so if you know if if the planets align and uh, everything works out, sure. But uh, you know, right now. Uh, there's there's so many moving parts in this, and uh, so many sort of uh, things that can go wrong that seem to be going wrong at the moment. Uh, it's it's just one of those things where uh, you know I want to be optimistic, but uh, you know I, we're not really seeing things uh, fall into places as as we would have liked so far. Thomas Tenkate has been with us, Professor, School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, talking about uh, the Prime Minister uh, in Canada receiving uh, vaccinations from COVAX, which is an organization designed to supply vaccines to uh, lower income countries, which Canada certainly does not fall into the category of. But we are where we are. Thomas, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Uh, Thanks very much, Scott. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, the government announced that uh, Proud Boys, this is a terror or extremist group, uh, will be added to Canada's list of terrorists. Uh, extremist groups, including the Proud Boys, have been placed on this list of terrorist organizations amid an apparent uh, crackdown on extremist violence. To talk more about all of this, David Hoffman is with us. Dr. David Hoffman, Associate Professor of Sociology with the University of New Brunswick, and is with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
I'm doing great. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, first, give us a rundown. Uh, for those that may, that might not know, who are the Proud Boys? What is the Proud Boys? So the Proud Boys were a group that was founded in 2016 by uh, former, uh, I guess, owner or creator of Vice News, Gavin McInnes. He was uh, bought out by several of his partners, uh, I think, a year or two after he was involved. But essentially, it started off as a, an alt-right movement. Um, essentially engaging in, in internet trolling, uh, coupled with, with, um, far, far right ideologies. And it, uh, evolved over time into a more virulent, uh, anti-Semitic, uh, anti-immigrant and, uh, with elements of white supremacy in there too. And, uh, we saw here in Canada, it, it uh, culminated and, and really came to, to the forefront of Canadian politics and, and Canadian, um, security apparatuses interest in 2017 when uh, a number of Proud Boys counter-protested an Indigenous protest in Halifax. So um, they, at least in terms of of more recent events, they were uh, one of the more prominent groups that were involved in the uh, January 6th uh, sedition riots, or or however you want to call them, in uh, Washington, D.C., which caused the Canadian government to um, essentially accelerate or, or precipitate this this designation of them as a terrorist group in Canada. Uh, talk about other chapters. You said obviously they're, they're they're big in the United States as well. Where is this group located? Are they all over the place? Are they mostly in in the in United States uh, in Canada? Where are they? I'm going to be honest and say that that um, I haven't really looked uh, at at their spread outside of North America. I know they're in Canada and they have chapters. They claim to have about 15 chapters in Canada on their website, or they did. Um, it's probably closer to seven or eight, uh, and in most provinces. It, like many of these groups, they'd like to inflate their numbers and make them seem more influential or more powerful. So uh, they are in Canada, uh, although, as you mentioned, they started in the United States, even though they were founded by a Canadian. So now they are on a terrorist uh, watch list. Talk about this list. What does that mean as a result of being on this list? Yeah, so uh, Canada uses the terror watch list to uh, essentially give police uh, and security apparatuses a little bit more punch in dealing with um, instances of violent extremism. So uh, by putting uh, the Proud Boys and the other three far-right movements uh, on the terror watch list, it allows them to uh, go after the anyone who supports these groups financially or materially. Um, it does not criminalize membership of the group. People, a lot of people, including myself until relatively recently, didn't, didn't know that. It, it, you can still be a card-carrying member of the Proud Boys, but as long as you don't support them financially or materially, um, you, you, you could still claim to be a Proud Boy. Um, it, it would include things like buying Proud Boy merchandise. And it would include things like hosting a Proud Boys event or uh, providing them web hosting services. So it, it, the, the idea here is it's, it's almost like a form of, of deplatforming, um, which makes it uh, all but impossible for these groups to continue uh, existing in a, uh, a concrete form. And how active is this group in Canada? Um, hard to tell because, uh, again, these groups like to inflate their numbers and like to mm-hmm. seem like they're more influential. Uh, they're here, uh, or, or they were here. Um, they, uh, they were involved in, in, especially after 2017, where 
that was kind of a watershed moment with the, the Charlottesville Unite the Right um, uh, rally and Trump uh, injecting uh, a lot of fervor and, and energy into this movement by calling members of both sides of, of that conflict uh, good people. Uh, there was an explosion, uh, metaphorical, not literal, thank God, explosion of, of uh, Proud Boy activity after that. Um, and uh, basically, they, they were involved in, in a lot of these these uh, Unite the Right events uh, after the Charlottesville. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a very... No, I'm that's good. Take examples your time. Here, but, no, no. It's, uh, uh, but anyways, a number of these, these events right after 2017, uh, they've become more quiet um, in Canada, I think, as... Uh, there's been a backlash, especially around the January 6th, and, and this, I think, is the nail in the coffin. That that's my was my next question here, David. Is is what has been the reaction from Proud Boys or or anyone of close to or affiliated with that organization now that these efforts are putting been put forward to put their name on a terrorist list? Um, how are they reacting to that? And uh, I'm going to be frank and say it's hard to tell. Uh, it's yeah, that I haven't been. Are you worried that they're going to go deeper down underground? That's exactly that's exactly what I've been predicting uh, yeah. when I've been asked this question over and over, and, and I'm I'm almost certain that um, I've, I've mentioned this on on the Bill Kelly show. I've mentioned this uh, many times over the last few days. But symbolically, what what happened by uh, the uh, Canadian government declaring the Proud Boys a, a terrorist organization is very important because it sends a clear messaging to Canadians and and people who hold these reprehensible ideologies that we will not tolerate. Them. And I think that's important. But from a security or a practical standpoint, it's not like being designated a, a terrorist organization is going to suddenly change all these people's minds. Yeah. What's likely going to happen is they're going to disband. I mean, they, they've become functionally, it, it's functionally impossible for them to continue to exist. They're going to disband. And what these, uh, these former Proud Boys will do is either rebrand under different names, mm-hmm. join other movements and spread their ideologies there, try to co-opt other movements. And they're going to do it in, in sneakier ways. They're not going to be quite so overt. And it's one of these tactics that the far right uses they, today in Canada is that they, they, they put on a veneer of being good old Canadian boys. And, oh, you know, we're, we're here for Canadian rights and we're, we're, they, we're going to hold food drives for the community uh, as kind of a, this, this show that what they're doing is really standing up for Canada. But in their close faces, they're virulently anti, anti-Semitic, anti Islam, uh, anti-immigration, and so on and so forth. So it's going to cause a diffusion effect, um, and they're not going to go away. Um, It it appears that... um, it appears that extremism has taken hold. I mean, we see that in the United States. We see it all over the world. uh, Either, and, and I'm against extremism on the right and the left. It seems that sometimes the reaction to the alt-right or the extremes on the right uh, and and bringing them out just riles up the extreme left and I'm not sure that's the answer. I'm looking for the center and I think, and this is just my opinion, David, and I'd love to hear what yours is, but I think in a post-COVID-19 world where, uh, you know, um, uh, we've had to, to be self-sufficient, we've had to survive, uh, we've had to concentrate on less fashionable things that a privileged life gives us here in Canada. And, and, and I think that, you know, it, it, when we see how divided uh, America is and, and, and other parts of the world, do you get the feeling that people are tired of both 
the right and the left and that they're looking for the center and politicians that's where the victory lies um uh, uh, is the world waking up to extremism and will it will it will it bring us back to the center uh i mean extremism isn't something new and i know that's not what you're arguing i mean the history of extremism is as long as the history of humanity uh this is just the current incarnation of extremism that we as we as Canadians are are going through it. I mean, mm-hmm. twenty years ago, it was Islamist, the the fundamental violent uh, perversion of of peaceful uh, mainstream Islam into mm-hmm. you know into a, a violent sect or a violent group. Thirty or forty years ago, it was it was ethno nationalist terrorism, like the FLQ and Sikh terrorism. I mean, this is just a, this is just another incarnation of of uh, ideologically motivated violence and. Uh, CSIS and, and other uh, security apparatuses in Canada would agree with you, with the right and the left. They, they're actually moving more and more towards, uh, and I've, I've had conversations with government officials who, who have uh, umbrage with the fact that I use the term far-right extremism. They prefer if I use the term uh, ideologically motivated violence extremism, IMVE. And they're right, and you're right. It's, there's, there's both a threat from the left and a threat from the right. In terms of, uh, I mean, I could go on and on why I look at the right instead of the left, and I don't think there's enough <laughs> airtime for that. But uh, No, it, they it, certainly, well, they certainly are well organized now, just as you said. They are the threat right now. We saw that on the steps right. of, of Capitol Hill. And I mean, 50 years ago, um, with groups like the Weathermen and, uh, in the U.S. and, and uh, other uh, student-led left-wing uh, domestic terrorist organizations, it was the left. And uh, it's it's the terrorism changes its and and these types of forms of violent extremism change with the times. And right now it's far right extremism. Will it will it cause uh, a shift to the center? I mean, uh, as a social scientist, uh, something I always try and teach my students is that there is no real black and white in this world. And when people start thinking in black and white, whether it's, you know, members of Antifa casting all people on the right in a certain way, whether it's neo-Nazis, you know, saying there's only two types of people, you know, the pure people, the impure people. That's a wrong way of thinking. The world is shades of gray in, in socially, culturally, politically, and so on and so forth. I, I agree with you. So the, the center is probably where Canada should be. Whether or not we're headed that way, I mean, I wish I had that crystal ball. But uh, it, it's, it's hard for me to, to make a prediction. But I, I think, I mean, in terms of your opinion, I think you're bang on. It seems that, and I mean, we've seen this in the United States, you're either on this team or you're on that team, and right. that's the end of the discussion. And, and you, you know, you, you talked about the gray area, and, you know, you'd pick ever one, whichever one you want to point is black and which one is white, but, you know, that gray area, as as vague as that sounds, is where most of us are, is where most of civilization is. Exactly. So, uh, you know, it's amazing that gray, I guess the point that I'm making is, is that, will that gray gray area react to this and say you know what um we don't want the right or the left we want the center and and many have said even with joe biden although he's obviously in, in a left-leaning party that eventually he's he's gonna br- he's a centrist he's gonna bring things back mm-hmm. to the center uh it, it's it's not uh, i i don't think it's whether will the center stand up and say we don't want this it, i think it's more the center should stand up and say this, hmm. uh, whether it's left, whether it's right, uh, there's, 
um, there's there's political and social imbalance globally. There's there's been a, a normalization effect where, and I'm not just blaming Trump. It's 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 globally. You see it in Brazil with Bolsonaro. You see it in Europe with Geertz and and Greece with uh, with people in their parliament who are part of the Golden Dawn, this this neo-Nazi party. Uh, I mean, it's something that's happened globally that that's really set the political climate and and the the kind of uh, zeitgeist. Um, uh, of, of, I mean, global culture is shifting a little bit more towards the right. Um, I, I think it's important for for the centrist to try and pull it back. I mean, uh, there should be balance. Why do you think we? And man, I've had this discussion long before COVID nineteen. But um, why do you think we are in a world of extremism right now? You know, and I've often thought perhaps maybe if we're lucky, uh, the positive out of COVID nineteen is this will unite us. It'll it'll remind us what's important. Um, but but why are we where we are? Is it uh, the uh, a large portion of the population disenfranchised? Is it the internet? And I'm sure it's all of these things. But why do you think yeah. we are where we are in it with extremism? It's either that way or this way. You, you touched on the right the right theme there when you said it's it's probably all of these things. Whenever we talk about social behavior in any way, it's it's again it's not one or two factors. We're, we're incredibly complex social beings as 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 human beings. Uh, it's usually a combination of factors. But what we know about with extremism and and why extremism comes out and why we end up with you know in like Nazi Germany with with uh, authoritarianism taking hold and so on and so forth. Uh, part of it is, is a response to uh, collective fear, collective anxiety. People. Part of it is, is the emergence of charismatic leaders who um, uh, say what you will about Trump. He absolutely has or, or had uh, uh, an incredible charismatic allure to him where he was able to promise relief from this, whatever this anxiety is, whether it's economic, religious, or mm-hmm. ideological. So there's, again, what, what it is, it's a variety of different factors, but there's something out there that, uh, again, has caused uh, a great deal of anxiety, and, and COVID is part of this, right? We're all anxious over COVID, where people, uh, people uh, want to be assuaged, people want to be reassured, and some people will find meaning in polemic answers. The world is a lot easier when you look at it in terms of black and white, and that's what people tend to do in times of crisis. It's, uh, you know, if, if a, terrorist, a terrorist attack goes off, the first thing is their evil they're mentally yeah. ill, you know, it's, it's casting them in, in, in very easy to understand generalist terms because it makes it easier to digest. And, and um, the literature and the, the scholarship on extremism tends to suggest this as well. There's something that, that society and, and globally that, we, that, that is making us anxious and, again, causing this environment for extremism to, to emerge. Well said. Um, again, getting back to the pandemic, once we stop fighting over vaccinations and, and, and we, we rectify the supply solution, will this unify? Will this, will this pandemic unify the world? Um, you know, we've certainly seen what four years of Donald Trump uh, has done and, and how he's basically, uh, you know, uh, shunned our former allies, praised uh, enemies and such. And, and it seemed as if the world was disorganized. There was no world order or America was giving up its responsibility as the world's, mm-hmm. uh, policeman or police person. Um, is it, do you see that changing now? Do you see that this, that, that now things have changed with the administration in the United States, that, that things will, people will start working together again, I guess is what I'm saying. 
we certainly seen that with the vaccine and how we certainly saw that with the vaccine and everybody working together on this. Right. Which is remarkable when, when it shows that when when humanity gets together and really wants to concentrate on something, I've thought more than once that, you know, if, if we cared as much for curing cancer or diabetes or or hunger, or poverty in, in, in a similar way to, to which we approached uh, the covid vaccination, I, I mean, this would be a wonderful place. Yeah. Good point. Uh, will it will it unify the world? Um uh, that's a tough one. Um, and uh, again, I wish I had a crystal ball, but uh, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to kind of share my, my own gut feelings with the caveat that, you know, I'm not speaking as an expert here. Um, I, I'm a little bit of a pessimist, and it's, maybe it's because I, I'm immersed in this, trying to understand the, the extremist mindset and extremist groups, but I, I suspect that uh, it'll be the inverse. I, I really think that um, uh, the anxiety and the questions and the economic instability that uh, COVID uh, brought out will will only increase this this anxiety I was talking about. Will it you know lead to global collapse and global war? I mean I'm not that much of an alarmist, but uh, the ramifications for the post COVID are, are we're going to feel this like for years and years to come. And there will be a small sub- subset of people who will seize upon uh, the 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 um, uh, post effects of COVID to recruit and, and enact uh, cases of violent extremism. I hear you. Uh, Dr. David Hoffman's been with us, Associate Professor of Sociology with the University of New Brunswick, talking about the pro boy, uh, Proud Boys, sorry, Proud Boys being added to Canada's list of terrorist groups, among others. David, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Have a good one. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here's Education Minister Stephen Lecce from the Bill Kelly Show. We believe that the program we followed in the fall allowed us to reopen safely, allowed a million and a half kids to go to school with 99.6% not having an active case. Eight in 10 schools at the peak of transmission do not have any cases of COVID. Now, I appreciate, Bill, you know, we have to be vigilant. The world has changed even since December in the context of these new variants. So that's the variability here that we all have to deal with and be flexible with. But at the end of the day, we followed the advice. We are going to continue to do that because for the province of Ontario, our mission is to keep kids safe. And we are the only province to have extended the virtual learning this long out of an abundance of caution because the health and safety of children and staff are paramount. And we're going to continue to follow the medical expertise who are saying schools are safe. And more importantly, they should reopen on the dates we've announced. That is Education Minister Stephen Lecce talking about uh, school reopening. And as of Monday, uh, kids are back, except in the hot spots of Toronto, Peel, and York. And they will go back uh, following the Family Day weekend. <laughs> family Day? Holy smokes. Uh, so there you go. Uh, good news. Um, some, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's, an un, it's an incredible balancing act. And uh, obviously, some are happy, some are not. Uh, and, and the key is to find the balance here somewhere. To talk more about all of this, Caroline Alfonso is with us, education reporter with The Globe and Mail, and uh, with us now. Caroline, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Well, you know, I'm uh, in one of those hot spots. Uh, I have two children at home. Man. So, like you said, it's a bit of a balancing act right now. How old are your kids? They are six and nine. So they're elementary school kids. And um, according to the minister, they will be back in school after family day. 
So, yeah, being in a hot spot, you're after the family day uh, long weekend. Uh, My kids are at home, uh, one in university and one in grade eight. So that's 13 and and 18. That's a little bit more manageable uh, than when you are where you are. But uh, obviously, you have to feel for those parents that have kids that are even younger than yours, Caroline. Oh, yeah, Scott. I mean, you know, just look at social media right now and uh, the number of parents who are talking about their kids, you know, having meltdowns, having to look at the screen yeah. for long hours. And, uh, you know, I'm, I feel lucky my kids are pretty good at doing this. Um, it's not, you know, it's not where they want to be. They'd rather be at school and with their friends and, you know, seeing their teacher face to face, but they're coping. Um, that's not the case for a lot of families. You know, some families have actually just said, we're, we're throwing in the towel right now. We're done with it for a bit. When we go back to school, we'll start up again. Um, my kids just can't handle all the screen time. So there's a real mixed bag out there, actually. You know, it's interesting, too, uh, you know, as I'm, I'm listening to you tell those stories about some of just, you know, I, I'm going to take a break for a while. You yeah. know, when you think about it, that's not a bad thing. You know, I, I've talked to many educators about this, and a lot of people are getting really hung up on the curriculum, and are they getting this, are they getting that? And that's really not the lesson here. The lesson is this is a once in a lifetime experience. And the lesson here is how do you survive all of these issues that come with a global pandemic as opposed to math or English? It's interesting, though, Scott, because, you know, I know teachers, those frontline teachers have taken that into account. They're, the teachers that I've spoken to have talked about sort of, you know, the mental health of their kids yeah. and making sure their kids are okay, the students are okay. But on the flip side, Scott, you have to remember that the curriculum hasn't changed. The expectations haven't changed there, right? Mm. So you're still grading to the curriculum yeah. from previous years. And so, oh boy, I, I just, I don't know what the impact, like there's been studies sort of predicting the learning loss and what this yeah. impact will be for this generation, but also like you have to take care of your children and make sure they're okay with how things are going right now, which is so important. Okay, so let's talk about back to school. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the hot spots in Toronto and Peel and York will remain till after the family day weekend. The rest are back on Monday. Uh, I guess we were first out, last back. Uh, but this is quite a balancing act because it seems for every parent that wants them back, there's ones that are that are uh, obviously concerned about uh, about their kids and their safety and, and moving forward. Yeah, and one of the things, Scott, that I've been pressing the minister, pressing Dr. Williams, the chief medical officer, about, and my colleagues have too, is sort of what are the metrics there? Why are you reopening schools at this point? Why are you reopening Hamilton, for example, next week, whereas Toronto opens the following week? What are the metrics that you're looking at? And we have not received any clear answers on that, um, which is, you know, which is disheartening, which is disappointing. You, the parents want to know sort of what are th- what does community transmission have to be to reopen schools? And we haven't received any clear answers on that, especially now with now we're seeing sort of the variant in the community, right, and what the impact will be. And one of the questions that the minister was asked yesterday when he announced the reopening of schools is the impact of this variant on school closures. What is the threshold? And we don't know. And so we're sort of going into this blind. Okay, families are going into this blindly. Educators are going into this blindly. And there should be some clear answers as to what the government is looking at, you know, Dr. Williams said he talks to the local medical officers of health, but 
is that the decision? Is that the decision? Are those the decision makers? Or is there something else sort of being put into that equation? I'd like to know that. Are we oversimplifying this, Caroline? Because, again, you know, I've been watching all these press conferences, as I'm sure you all have. Um, and, and I remember, I remember, uh, the Dr. Williams getting asked that question. And what I got out of his answer is the metrics for each of those regions are all different. And I, yeah. I think we're looking for a template that we can put over the whole province and works for every region. And that just doesn't work because, like, for example, the new cases, the positivity rate, uh, you know, those are all factors that go in. Many said as soon as we started to see the positivity or the new cases come down that we should be going back in. But then there was other factors such as new uh, newer variants. And again, each region's different depending upon the density of its population and such. So what I got from him yesterday was that that, you know, uh, everybody wants, you know, especially the educational system, because they they strive on consistency. That's what makes it work. Mm-hmm. The same mm-hmm. thing every single day with every single student. But unfortunately, during a global pandemic, much like a war, you don't have that. And, you know, the way you attacked one region is different than you attack another one. So, for example, you could have new cases going down in a certain region, but there's other factors that have those local health experts concerned, which would keep restrictions in place. So then you have people going, well, the cases are coming down. Why is that not? And I'm not sure that people grasp those answers when Dr. Dave Williams gives them. But again, what I got out of all of that was there is no metric. The metrics are about probably a half a dozen, and I'm just making this up, a half a dozen, a dozen things. And those change with every single region. No? I get that. I can I can see that. Well, spell that out. That has not been spelled out. You know, if they are changing with every region, tell. But again, me, I just, I just, me, I just kind yeah. of spelled it out for you. Like that's what I got out of this. So I, again, I, you know, I, I'm not sure that the average person is listening to him much after his second sentence. So again, you know, I think people are asking questions that a we don't have answers to, or b we know the answer. It's just not the one that people want to hear. Well, you know, one of the things that would be clear. And I understand that, you know, you're going into the weeds here, but with me asking these questions, I want sort of details around it. Well, compare two regions for me. Compare Hamilton and, you know, Brand County, for example. Compare those two regions. Tell me sort of how they differ and what the differences are that you're looking for. And even that basic question has not been answered. So I can understand from that why families are hesitant. They don't understand why they're going back and why those dates were selected for them to go back. And in this day and age, we need some sort of transparency around that, and that hasn't been provided. Yeah, I just, you know, I understand that the general public isn't getting that, but I don't think that information, I think that information has been provided in, in what I just said to you momentar- a few moments ago, that, you know, these templates are different, I guess, if, you know, you want to compare a Peel region to uh, another region that's not in a hot spot, you know, I, I'm sure that the Dr. Williams has had that explanation on why, you know, one region is, is sitting where it is and, and has a different approach uh, to another reason, uh, another region. But I think a lot of people are asking questions that, you know, uh, again, either they're, they're not following along into the weeds um, or, or there just is no answer for that. 
Well, that's because it's a fluid situation. Well, it's a fluid situation. There, there is no answer. There's a lot of no. There is a lot of. There's a lot of questions that aren't answered, including when the next shipment of vaccines is going to arrive. That's life during a global pandemic. Uh, and again, I, I think we're looking for a template here that gives everybody all the answers in, in 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 a consistent answer, and that's just impossible to do. I don't know. They put a template for the color coded system. There was a clear template there that shows you when you go from gray to another color. There's a template provided there. That template can be adapted to the school system in the same way. There there are templates. It's not that they don't exist. They don't share them. That is the problem. That is so into. So, Caroline, is the question that we're, you know, and I think we've got sidetracked here, but is the question that people in, say, for example, hotspots don't understand why their school is opening a week later, for example, than those that aren't in a hotspot? Are there people that don't understand that? Are we looking for something to happen in that week? (laughs) I don't know. Nobody's answered that. Is there something that's going to happen between next Monday and Tuesday that we're looking for? Is 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 it numbers that we're looking for or is it? public health, local public health authorities that are looking to get some things ready for the school system and perhaps need some more time. I would suggest that, again, I mean, it's just a lot of things, but nobody is providing the answers. And journalists have been asking these questions repeatedly at press conferences. We can we can suppose a lot of things. I can, I, can, I can probably think, you know, maybe Dr. Davila needs some more time to get the asymptomatic testing going for schools. And maybe, you know, uh, the Halton uh, MOH has that in order. But when we ask that question, there is no answer to it. So I don't know what's going to change between Hamilton's reopening and Toronto's reopening. What, is there a number you're looking for? Is it something to come in line? That's what I'm saying, Scott. You know, I understand what there, you're saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's nothing there. What What are we looking? And you know, this is this is a this is a discussion that can go on and on and on. And the fact I don't know. That, I I just feel you know I feel that if you were to ask me that question, I can give you an answer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe, and that's just from watching this stuff every day. And, and no, like, honestly, it's like, why is there a delay in the week? Well, because those cases are a lot higher. It does allow them more time to prepare. I mean, all of those things that you've just said. So, uh, you know, uh, if the cases don't come down in that week, are we saying trying to appeal and work will not open? You know, or is that- I think that would depend on, again, the individual metrics, all of those other metrics that we were just talking about and how what they're reflective of. So in, then in why, why announce those three regions? Why not say, you know, we're reopening all these boards on Monday and then we're going to wait for Toronto, Peel and York? Why give a date? I understand the reason you may want to give a date is to give some assurances to families. And well, yeah, because everybody's been complaining but, up till now. They want a date. They want a date. They want a date. And then when they get a date, it's like, well, why is that date that date? I mean, well, you know, it, why though? There's no answer to that. Why? Well, that? again, I think you've answered all your your own questions. And again, from what I've seen of watching these press conference, it is to allow more time. It is because those are hot spots. It is because it's a very high density area. Uh, it does allow them more time to do that. The other areas do not have uh, the the positivity rate or the infection rate that those areas do. So again, I, I to me, this seems like common sense if 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 you're following it. 
I am following it. I don't. I, I'm not that. saying that you're not, Caroline. <laughs> Please don't take it that way. I'm talking I, I, about people in general. You know, I, I know. I know exactly. And I admire and, and you know and, and credit all you guys and girls are doing uh, to all this. I mean, we're all in the same boat. We're all trying to get answers to questions. Um, so no, please, please, I didn't, I didn't mean to, uh, to, uh, to suggest that in any means. Um, but, but again, it's, I just keep, you know, I keep thinking that we're asking questions that, uh, you know, there is no concrete answer or the concrete answer is, uh, is, has again, a, a lot of different metrics, a lot of different factors, and one may be different from the other. But, you know, I certainly do understand, uh, the confusion, the, the confusion that is, uh, around all of this. Um, uh, that being said, moving forward, um, uh, Ontario was the first to, to, to get out, of, uh, to close the schools down, the last to go back. Mm-hmm. Is there much, cons- is there demand out there to keep them closed, you see, do you think? Or is there more, uh, is, is there, is it leaning towards more people wanting the schools open or more people wanting them kept closed? You know, at the end of the day, I think most people that you talk to want schools open. They want kids in the school buildings because they understand how important it is, you know, academically, socially, developmentally for children to be there. And I think the the argument that I'm hearing, I it, the the issue of schools opening is such a divisive topic, Scott, yeah, that, yeah. you know, you can't come down the middle. I say anything and it's you know, immediately it polarizes one way or the other, right? Yeah, That's, yeah. You, you cannot give a right answer to this. But I think at the end of the day, there is no disagreement on the fact that people want kids in schools. The doctors want kids in schools. The educators want kids in schools. There is disagreement on what it takes to get keep kids in school. I am not ignorant to the fact that there is a pandemic and there is COVID in the community and schools don't have this huge firewall that's going to keep COVID out. So when you say schools are safe or unsafe, I feel like that's a circular argument that you'll never get around. But what people are saying is that are there enough measures in schools that we don't come to a point where we have to close them again? Do you know what I mean? And that is the biggest thing because, yes, we talk about mental health challenges among kids right now because they're out of school. I think what could be worse is that you send kids back and then once again you send them home again. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be, I'm I'm talking not only like as the education reporter, but also as a parent, you know, who has seen her kids yo-yo back and forth between school and home. And so... I look to other jurisdictions where, which have put some more stringent measures. Like, look at France. They know the variant is circulating, so they require some of their kids to wear surgical masks now, right? And they enforce that six-feet distancing. Like, that is mandatory. And quite frankly, that does not happen in many classrooms in Ontario. And so, yes, it's a good idea that all kids are wearing masks. Many boards had instituted that from the get-go, from the fall. Yes, it's a good idea that we're testing kids. And yes, it's a good idea that we have surveillance systems like screening and things like that. But I right now am hesitant to go into a room with 25 other people and sit right next to them. And so we really need to think about what we're doing when we do that to our children. Caroline Alfonso has been with us, education reporter for the Globe and Mail. Caroline, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks.
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.